0: Well, welcome to Alec Kiros. Alec is a uh, professor at the U of R. Uh, he teaches in the education department and a lot of his research and teaching focuses on tech and media. So welcome, Alec.
1: Thanks, Dean. Thanks for having me. Um,
0: first off, I wanted to ask you a little bit just about your own um, personal experiences with uh, social media. Are you an avid user of social media and, and sort of what social media are you primarily interested in?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely an avid user. I teach classes uh, in for the use of social media, uh, specifically around using it in education, using various social media in, in education, um, talking about the, you know, the use of it with children uh, or young people, typically uh, teenagers. Uh, we get a lot into that, um, and. What I'm on, I guess I've, I've been on Twitter since 2007. So I was probably six months after it was created. Uh, I was, I was on Twitter. We tried everything else. There was things like Yammer and. Per- so were you on Twitter,
0: Twitter before they added the E were you on it when it was like, uh, no, no I, don't think was, no,
1: I think that was much earlier. I think that was 2006. So I don't think I was quite there, but, um, but you got think, it on the ground floor. Yeah. Yeah. I was January, <laughs> 2007, I believe so um it was a, it was a bunch of educators who were kind of moving around from one platform to to another platform we landed on twitter we were still using other ones and twitter is the one that took off there was a, there was a number of other microblogging services that's where i spend most of my time i would say i do facebook i do instagram instagram a little bit um facebook is it has kind of evolved to you know people that i you know my 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 my, my personal space Instagram still, you know, where I use it mostly for education and uh, to speak out online, honestly. Uh, it's been, you know, a good platform. I've been there for a while and I'm not leaving yet <laughs> until there's something better, I guess. Um, I mean, you
0: got to be ready for the metaverse, you
1: know. That's right. Well, the metaverse I've dabbled in as well and blockchain and crypto uh, as well. So I'm I, I, well... Uh, I understand what's going on there. I'm not, I'm not sure we're quite there yet, but uh, we're headed there for sure. Yeah. Okay. Right. On.
0: Um, so there's a bunch of different sort of layers to the social media experience and the, the online experience that I want to ask you. About. But the first thing that I think uh, a lot of my audience and me personally are you know, wondering about is the impact that it has on young people. Um, We talk a lot about the impact of social media on youth and what it does to their mental health and what it does to the way that they interact. And and in the in the wake of the pandemic, kids have spent a lot of the last two years Mm -hmm. sort of permanently online. Um, Can you talk a little bit maybe about the impacts of that and what that means for those kids?
1: Well, I've got two reference points for that. I I do dabble quite a bit in, in the research around this as well. Uh, I've got four kids, and uh, three of them I would say are social media age. One's a little bit too young. I mean, and when I'm when I when I'm talking about social media age, that's you know nine and up these days. I mean, that's uh, the the research I've looked at um, is essentially that you know students or young people will have their will have posted something online by themselves, like not their parents are posting it online, but by the age of nine. That's when you're getting Instagram accounts, uh, TikTok accounts, for instance. Of course, you know technically, they're supposed to be thirteen, given the Child Online Privacy Protection Act. Um, but that's obviously not the case. Lots of young people uh, with support from their parents in many cases, are you know going online uh, at at a fairly young age and um, perhaps too young. you know, I, I, I would suggest in a lot of uh, in in a in a real way, uh, given you know the the addictiveness to uh, to social media, things like TikTok in particular, you know you're scrolling forever and ever and ever on these platforms, and then of course there's you know the you know the inappropriate messages you'll get in DMs, particular in Instagram. Then when you get into um, you know you know the ages of 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, you know those tough. Uh, ages that kids are dealing with a lot of transitions in their lives, uh, physically and mentally, and um, a lot of pressure um, to perform a certain way. There's a lot of uh, what's known as the social comparison theory. Um, this idea that you know we're we're constantly comparing ourselves to the next person. We do that as adults, but could you imagine doing it as you know young kids? You know, thinking about your appearance. Um, you know the Advent and, and prevalence of filters, for instance, really messing with the psychology of our body, our, our body, uh, image and, uh, you know, image in general, um, it, it's tough, especially young girl, young girls, uh, we're seeing that in particular, um, young boys use it in a very different way, but, um, you know, having, uh, two daughters at that, at that age. That's where I saw the most struggle. I think is is seeing young girls use uh, these tools at a young age, given all of the other pressures that they have. Um, in so, the middle years in high school, as
0: as a parent in particular of young, in particular of young girls, but as just young people in general, um, yeah. you know, we see the 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 sort of reports come out. Uh, like the one that, that was released about Facebook fairly recently about how they knew that Instagram had a pretty significant negative effect on young yeah. girls' mental health. And they sort of went on anyways. So as a parent and, and as an educator, what are your sort of takeaways from that? Why do you think that they carried on anyways? And what do you think sort of the implications of that? Made?
1: I mean, these are these are evil companies, honestly. The don't be evil piece, you, you can throw that out the window. Um, you know, there there was a time, there was a r- report at one point where Instagram was withholding likes from its users as part of a uh, sort of a pilot program. So if you can imagine, you know, there's you know, a young girl will say, post something to Instagram and it just sort of goes into this limbo for a while where no one's liking it. You know, they're expecting instant likes. They're looking at that screen, waiting for likes, wondering why no one's liking that photograph. It's because, you know, Instagram is sort of withholding it from receiving anything. So, could you imagine, you know, this the trauma that's happening with with young people um, who kind of hinge their identity on these social media platforms and feel, for some reason, people are not liking what they posted, sitting around until they have to eventually delete it because they feel like there's some issues there. Um, with whatever they posted. And so, so that sort of thing the, the control that these social media ha- companies have on our identities, um, is you know, really quite scary. Um, and they're not doing these things, uh, ultimately for the benefit of humanity. You know, Zuckerberg would say that, that you know, it's all about humanity, but they're doing it essentially for, you know, shock, uh, so sorry, shareholder value, right. Um, They want to make sure that these companies are evaluated at uh, immense um, uh, valuations and, um, you know, if that's the end game, this is not going to do much for development of our children or, you know, as as Facebook sort of people who have left the company, uh, we know that it's driving our society apart, like social media is uh, essentially doing that on all issues. Uh, and companies are letting it happen,
0: so you specifically said that that kids as young as nine are going on this stuff with with sometimes support from their parents. Why do you think that's happening? Why do you think so many parents are feeling um, maybe obligated or like they're they it's okay to be putting a phone in the, the hands of a kid that young or creating a social media account for a kid that young. Why do you oh, think that uh, that's happening?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, parents aren't parent. You know, my parents and your parents weren't the parents of today. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we're a little bit softer in terms of what we allow, and you know, in certain ways, like digital online ways. I think we we've we've been quite much more liberal in our parenting aspects. When it comes to like walking down the street or not wearing a bike helmet, that's a whole different thing, right? So some of those physical things that we did as young kids know, uh, come back when the sun goes down, that that sort of thing is gone. Where is that sort of those much more um, liberal leanings, I guess, in terms of what we allow kids to do online um, has changed. So that's, that's one part of it. Um, lots of peer pressure from other parents. Um, kids don't feel included in social networks. I think um, if you're not on social media at certain ages, you essentially feel invisible to your peers. And so there's a lot of awareness um, from parents that for their kids to be included they need to be part of these social networks and so you know there are some better ways to put uh, their get their kids online you know there's a monitored version of facebook messenger for instance that allows your you to kind of get a log and report and find out exactly who your kids are talking to and and control who their friends are Um, it's kind of like the training wheels of social media but at the same time not only just training wheels but you're also training your kids to you know to be um part of the sort of dopamine um driven Mm -hmm. um this factory i guess where where likes uh you know contribute to your uh, well-being so i think you have to be very cautious of of that but there's certainly lots of pressure and of course parents are doing this you know they um they're not exactly always the best role models for balance in their lives or for using social media in moderation, um, you know, and you can you can notice that if you happen to be out in a restaurant, it's been a while since I've been out in a restaurant, but you know, I still remember the days where, you know, every single person is on a device, uh, children, parents, and no one's talking to each other. And that's pretty cliche by now, but still, still what's happening.
0: I remember hearing somebody describe social media as the dopamine slot machine, and it it seems like such an apt descriptor, because it just gives you that shot of whatever you're looking for, whenever you want it. Um, I have I have like a little bit of a pet theory about um, maybe why people of a certain age are quite permissive with online presence. And, and I'm wondering, I'd love to hear your um, thoughts on it. I'm wondering if a big part of that is because people around my age, uh, like I'm, 36 um, grew up with a lot of very traumatizing online content in the early days of the very early unfiltered days of the internet like there was running jokes about sending people to just incredibly shocking things and like you know yeah public executions circulated and email chains and all manner of things do you think maybe the the sort of wild west nature of the internet that a lot of Current parents grew up with influences that perspective as well.
1: Well, I, I certainly think there's a desensitization of you know, that type of content. Like we grew up with my generation like my, I wouldn't say my generation, but you know, I was well into my 30s where we saw sites like rotten.com .com, um, where you'd see decapitations and you know human death, and of course, kids are are drawn to these sort of the curiosities of of these sites at a young age. And you know, media and it and it's uh, uh, in all forms, kind of pushes you that way. So for instance, there's you know, if you watch Family Guy, there's allusions to some of the probably the most gross shock sites imaginable. And they'll have uh, you know, Stewie watching a video that happens to be a shock site. and you know people who uh, are in tune with some of what's, you know this sort or of the some of this type of content online who have seen it, who have been, you know, uh, subject to it at some point, know what's going on. But then, of course, it piques kids' curiosities, and they end up searching for something online, and they're not at all prepared for that uh, to, to see those things. So I think, after a while, it becomes quite abrasive to our souls to, to the point that um, you know it's it's just it's just normal, right, to be able to to run into this content over time. And so I, I do think that um, part of that tolerance and for, for us to let kids kind of in, you partake in this Wild Wild West is we become desensitized to some of the damages that it might cause. Um, I think it brings in adulthood or adult content much too early in, in our lives. Um, and without parental intervention, we don't really get a chance to talk to kids about this. They're not going to say, I found this, you know, X video on, uh, online and I want you to talk me through it. They're just going to have it linger in their souls for a while. Um, mm. it's gonna be part of what they, what they did. And so, so I guess, you know, I think that, you know, that that's not a, uh, not, not a bad theory at all. I think that our exposure to this content has sort of opened up the door for, for us to be much more lenient on what kids can see online. Like it, we mm-hmm. perhaps don't feel that it's damaged us, uh, in any way, perhaps it does. It has, um, you know, there's all, there's all sorts of studies in terms of the desensitization of content, um, or the exposure to say, um, you know, um, you know, body image, uh, you know, of female, of say, um, you know, the Kardashians and and that sort of thing and how it might affect children. Um, But, you know, it's kind of, it's all over the place in terms of uh, findings, you know, do games cause violence or do they not cause violence? Um, It depends, right? It really depends. Uh, For some, it's cathartic um, that those kids that are prone to violence anyway, um, actually the games prevent or provide an outlet to kids who might be violent otherwise. Um, for other kids, um, it might uh, bring them to violent thought, but it doesn't necessarily bring them to violent action. So mm-hmm. there's all sorts of um, you know competing theories. I think when it comes to what we see on the on the web and how it actually affects us.
0: Um. And I assume that a lot of those impacts extend to adults, too. Like, we're, we're focusing, focusing specifically on kids, but I think you and I both sort of exist on SAS Twitter, and I think we're both fairly familiar with the sort of climate that, that can exist on there sometimes and how hostile it can get on, on occasion. Um, my question really is, how has the pandemic maybe affected that or exacerbated that? the way that people interact with one another on social media? Do you think yeah. that the reduction in face-to-face has changed the way that we interact with each other online?
1: I, I think of that a lot. I mean, uh, I was a history teacher at one point and uh, one of the lessons, and, and I was kind of a stupid history teacher because I remember going into my, in my internship and you know, I was in Humboldt, Saskatchewan. I did an internship in St. Bruce, Saskatchewan. And uh, as an intern, I brought and my dad had this um, bayonet, like a World War II gun that he, that uh, I brought to school one day, which I would never think about doing today. But but the whole idea <laughs> of bringing this gun was I was talking about uh, nuclear war and uh, and one to one combat, so World War One type combat versus uh, and and like hand to hand combat versus you know someone pressing a button and destroying an entire city and what would be Mm -hmm. easier and so on. So I, um, you know, I thought about, you know, we we thought about back then the humanity of seeing someone face to face and whether you'd make the same decisions versus, you know, um, humanity being a bit of a black box. And I think that's happened today is that, um, you know, one, we're, we're not seeing each other. We're not seeing their context, their families, how these people normally are. So the people that we confront online, um, we, you know, we basically characterize them by the last tweets, by their political ideologies, things that they've said online. And so it's really easy to dehumanize people and to treat them quite differently. And and I think that happens on, you know, it happens fairly easily on all sides of the political spectrum. I think um, we dehumanize people quite quickly and treat them badly. Then of course, you know, going back to social media, I mean, this is this is why social media is quite dangerous not only are are you know facebook and twitter doing this to us because of filter bubbles for instance you know um uh, basically putting us into these um into these silos of ideology um and keeping us apart from each other not able to you know in any way um reconciliate sort of our uh our beliefs and trying to find some commonalities um you know social media does do that but uh, as part of that, there's the whole entire um, propaganda units, the disinformation units. We're talking, you know, organized campaigns from China, from Russia, um, who really are doing their best to uh, sow sort division of in our lives. Uh, they do this, like for instance, on any particular issue, whether you support same-sex marriage or whether you support vaccinations. Um, you know, propagandists in Russia and China and other countries don't care what side we land on the issue. They just what they just care about us being divided about these things. And it, you know, it shows up now, like, you know, we're, you know, the US, Canada, other nations are the, the the least or the most divided they've ever been in history. And so how do you have, um, how do you have uh a real foe, I guess, when it comes to uh, military action, for instance, like Mm -hmm. uh, a divided US um, where there's really, you know, no um, real, really no partnership, I guess, uh, or, uh, you know, ability to work together as a government and the same thing with Canada is not much of a threat to Russia when they go into Ukraine, you know, getting into the Mm -hmm. political sphere here. And so this has worked. It's worked to the point that our governments don't work well together. Um, we're ideologically separated in, in parliament or in, in, the, in the house. And so as we work, as we don't work together, as we don't agree, as we don't work together as countries or as nations, um, all that disinformation stuff has really, really worked for uh, for authoritarian governments.
0: So with this disinformation campaign that's been coming from these authoritarian governments, I think one question that's front of people's mind is like, this seems very present now. Like, I think, I think, you know, the, the conversations about Russian bots and all those things are fairly common now. How long has this sort of thing been going on?
1: Oh, this has gone, been going on for a long time. I mean, if you look at disinformation campaigns, Um, You know, we can go back to, you know, 1274 BC and and Ramses who, you know, created at the Battle Battle of Kaddish, who basically created, you know, fake narratives, you know, scrawled on stones, on tablets uh, in terms of his might in the midst of this battle. You can look at um, Mussolini, who there's a famous photo of Mussolini. Um, on, uh, on, a, on a horse and the horse is sort of he, he's got a sword up in the air and he's on this horse and he looks quite great. But if they you know, for whatever they did in the 1950s, they're able to um, photoshop for lack of better terms of whatever they did in the 1950s, the horse handler who was actually holding the horse because uh, you know Mussolini with the horse handler on the horse is not going to look nearly as, as uh, courageous, I guess. So they did things like that or, you know, uh, in Canadian example, there was a, uh, a great image of George VI, Queen Elizabeth and um, and William Lyon Mackenzie. They, they took out George VI, uh, the king, because they wanted William Lyon Mackenzie to look more prominent and more, you know, uh, important in that photograph. So that that sort of thing has been going on for a long, long time. Uh, in China, there was, uh, I think, what they call the one cent army. For the longest time, they were uh, paying, um, prop, you know, p- paying uh, individuals one cent per post um, for, uh, you know, propaganda posts. Uh, we saw things in during the early pandemic. Oh, sorry, twenty sixteen. We saw um, teenagers in Macedonia who were making, you know, thousands of dollars in a place with a really low GDP. Who are making tons of money on pro-Trump sites, like, and they don't care what's happening in the U.S. They're just people trying to make money. They don't care again who uh, who, who is in power in the U.S. Macedonia is, for the most part, you know, isolated from the decisions in the West, um, but they're able to make some money by just putting up Trump propaganda. So, like, this has happened. You know, for centuries in all shapes and forms for different reasons, whether it's money, whether it's power, whether it's fame and fortune, um, it's been going on for a long time. But in terms of these really um, concentrated um, disinformation campaigns in the the media space, this, of course, has really changed a lot in the social media age where uh, things have been much, much easier to create bot farms to, uh, again, to to emulate or to uh, to recreate what looks like real people, but of course are just simple bots that are parroting um, all sorts of propaganda.
0: So that raises an interesting question. how How could like just a normal person wandering around on Twitter identify a bot like that? What are some markers yeah. or some common features that they may be able to keep an eye out for?
1: I mean, there there's bots, and then there's paid pundits, right? There's so that's the difference. The bots are easier to figure out. Um, you can go through their histories. I mean, the same thing happens on Facebook. You can see what sort of things they're liking, their their interactions, and they look quite robotic. You can see that they, you know are in fact bots. Um, so if you know a, an unpopular premier, for instance, gets three thousand, uh, I won't mention anyone, but it gets you know three thousand <laughs> likes to say. People you know, we'll just say, we'll just say it's three thousand likes on 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 a Twitter post, right? Uh, on something they posted, but there's nothing but um, anti, you know, uh, you know not so nice comments, right? So you get all these likes from from a bot farm, for instance, that you know we're assuming. But every single comment uh, is sort of anti the, whatever the message might have been from the, from the premier. You know you have a problem because um, why aren't all of these other people who are liking the post also commenting on the post? So you can see that pretty quickly that, um, you know, governments routinely bring in um, all sorts of PR, PR companies to handle their social media to make sure that they look uh, much more popular in the eyes of those on social media and to the press and and beyond. So, I mean, this is very common tactic from, you know, PR firms are paid big money to uh, represent um, political parties in this way.
0: And that is, so is that a case where, I'm gonna ask you to speculate wildly here, so feel free not to. Yeah. Um, would the person who is sort of the one who's the premier in question, for example, as a vaguely speaking example, mm-hmm. would they know that that's happening or would they just think I've hired a PR firm to run my social media and that come what may?
1: Well, I, I can't say for sure, but from what I know from experiences where I've worked and where I've uh, can, you know consulted on such things, um, and, and knowing what's happening with social media in, you know, executive offices of any big educational institution, say universities, for instance, what happens in, you know, in governments, um, from my first, first-hand experience, is that, you know, the executives, whether they're the premier or deputy premiers or whoever it might be, they know exactly what's happening in social media. They get sentiment reports on a daily basis, they get, you um, they get information about what's happening because they need to know the sentiment because
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know this aligns with the, the polling data that they have to get because decisions are made on on polling data. So if you're if you're losing a big part of your say support or your base to say we'll say an example you know a fringe type party with uh, nationalistic and extremely you know white supremacist views. And you're and you you're you're thinking that your vote is going to be split, your policy is going to change, and so hmm. you know that was just a total you know you know make believe uh, example, for instance. Um, but but uh, right
0: right out of the air.
1: But you're finding out the sense of polling data and sentiment are becoming uh, synonymous with uh, or, or becoming equally important in, in the way that uh, governments govern. And so I think it's really important that we understand that what we say online, the sentiment that we create as users online does have effect on on policy. Even if it feels like you're you're saying things over and over again and nothing is changing, things are changing, Um, but they're changing at a slow pace. And you're also against other people who are saying other things and they may be less, you know, governments, for instance, may be less, caring about what you have to say, because you're never going to vote for them, versus those people who vote for them now and may not vote for them in the future. So Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's a big difference in who you might, you know, strike your affinities with, or who you might try to appease in a voting situation. So do you
0: think that in the face of all of this sort of disinformation in the bot farms and all of these things, do you think that, you know citizen activism on social media can still move the needle
1: it does yeah no i'm I'm a big uh, fan of you know citizen citizen activism i think um you know we in the west um and, and we can talk about the differences in terms of privilege and treatment of people online here um but you know we're very fortunate for the most part i mean we can talk about all day about whether or not masks are you know taking away our freedoms or whatever else um but every one of us can say something online and for the most part you know we're we're free to do those well we're absolutely free to do those things we might have consequences we're free to Mm -hmm. do those things you know i mean right now there's there's russians in the street protesting ukrainians uh we're protesting the war so the russians in the street supporting you know or, or or sorry pushing against, um, the war in Ukraine. And mm. these are people that their freedoms are in real jeopardy, like protesting in the street police are there. Um, you know, Putin's friendly army uh, is not going to be nice to those people. There are, mm. um, there are people in Ukraine who cannot, um, in any way speak out on social media. Uh, there are people in Russia, they can't speak out on social media because it's either, um, it's either filtered, like you cannot do that. You'll um, the VPNs will not be effective because you know the, the government has control of the network, and it's really easy to figure out where you know this is coming from. Uh, in fear, we can still do that. We're, we're still, you know, whatever whatever is being said about our freedoms in Canada and our uh, our prime minister being, you know, a authoritarian, it's just it's patently not, not true. We can still do the things that we wanna do, and we don't face those types of repercussions as they do in states that are actually authoritarian.
0: Do you think that there's a risk as well with people sort of getting frustrated with social media or walking away from it, that something happens like what's happened right now with Facebook, where it sort of hollowed itself out and left a lot of space for the far right to use it?
1: Oh, absolutely, right? So whenever there's a void to be filled, it'll be filled. You know, if if uh, you know, a lot of people have left Twitter. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people who are much more right leaning or extreme, their voices don't feel that they're heard on there, so they've tried to create. I think there's a new Trump social network now that I saw. really social. Yeah, there you go. So there's there's <laughs> one example. So um, those aren't going to be like you're not going to see a, a huge number of left leaning people moving to those spaces. So it's going to be essentially an echo chamber. But then at the same time. Twitter can be that too. Right. So, and and depending on who you follow, that's going to be a big difference. I don't think Twitter at the moment is necessarily an echo chamber, unless you make it an echo chamber, depending on who you're following. And of course, how the algorithm steers you. Um, but, but yes, I mean, opening up the opportunity, not saying anything about certain things opens up others to say things that are counter to what you believe. And so, you know, we can get into the whole silence as a complicity argument, but I, but I think those with some power and privilege and stability in their lives um, you know, have an obligation to speak online. And as much as you wanna say, I'm not gonna be political online, um, everything's political. Everything's being politically used against us. Um, people are being uh, you know, disadvantaged, uh, marginalized, racialized. Um, people need to hear people with power speak who can be their allies and proponents. And I think we're, you know, as a citizen, you know, we talk about digital citizenship in a lot of my courses. Um, Citizenship is digital citizenship is not just about being safe and, you know, the stuff that we talked about before about keeping kids safe online and making sure that they don't get into bad content. It's also about being, you know, an active citizen, uh, someone who's not only a participatory citizen, but also a socially just justice oriented citizen. Someone who mm-hmm. wants to, you know, some of the stuff that you're doing, I, I think, is, ra- you know, raising awareness in very simple ways to, to what's going on around us. And I think we need uh, and I think that would be you know, a great topic to get to. We sort of alluded to it earlier in the pre-show um, mm-hmm. as, as this idea, like, what is the role of what, are, what should be the role of teachers, uh, those who can explain things so well? Uh, in what they do, you know, they're trained to explain things well in simple forms. You know, what is our obligation as teachers uh, to, in some ways, uh, educate the public, you know, beyond the classroom? You know, do we have an obligation? And then, of course, what are the the costs and benefits of doing so? And I think that's, you know, that's that's, that's something that we have to think about a lot. Also, teacher education programs have to think about that. How do we train teachers, school boards, etc.?
0: I think you speak to a really fundamental sort of tension that a lot of teachers feel. Um, we are very equipped to communicate information, and we're usually pretty informed just by nature of our jobs and our training. Yeah. But we're also very often told not to speak up, not to advocate, to keep our opinions to ourselves, to sort of put on this veneer of being unbiased. Um, why do you think that sort of is applied to teachers, rightly or wrong?
1: Well, I mean, there's there's a mythology around teachers being neutral, right? Um, because curriculum is not neutral, right? We, we've you know when we say you know for years, um, Columbus was a really nice guy. Like we, we we love that guy. What a what a fantastic explorer this Columbus. Um, he did all these wonderful things, and he you know came to North America, and he's you know the founder of our ability to live in this in this place. Curriculum didn't speak truth to the actual situation and to the colonization and to, uh, you know, the mass genocide that ensued, you know, within the centuries after that um, and treatment of indigenous people and so on. And so for us to say that, you know, we are neutral in the, in the classroom is absolutely false because we, we, ha- we, we uh, have curriculum that isn't neutral and we have to speak to it. And I get it. when I when I mean being political in classrooms, it's not saying hey everyone vote SAS party or vote MVP. It's not like that at all. It's like being much more issues based, talking about the world around us with fact, with uh, retrospect, with um, with accuracy. You know, with what we've learned over the years and how we've how our beliefs have been shaped as a society and as individuals. Um, and of course, people are gonna that's going to be different for different teachers. I mean, we can't say that all teachers are more left uh, left leaning or right leaning. You know, there are, depending on where you teach and where you're from and what your, you know, who your parents voted for and so on, your, your leanings are going to be very, very different. Um, but at the same time, you know, hopefully teachers can be uh, can be researchers. They can be much more fact-based uh, and be able to, um, you know, take what they know about the world in, in know, sort of information literate ways, and then apply um, their ability to explain things and to teach things uh, in in ways that can be applicable to a larger public good. And Mm -hmm. and I think that's important. And honestly, I think some of the stuff that you're doing online has really spoken to that and and showed in not massively political, you know, in political ways, you know, political, of course, is a, a very wide term, but not so much in political parties, although you do allude to them in your videos, but really in a much more generic way of bringing in justice related issues, I think, or safety related issues or information related issues, especially with the pandemic. Like, how do we find our information? Are we getting good information? Um, how do we, are we making the right decisions on, on that information? You know, what are some of the nefarious reasons why we're not? getting the right actions for those reasons, for, for the information that we're getting. Um, mm-hmm. Bringing question to all those things really just stokes the critical thinking that we need uh, in this time. And so I, I'm appreciative of the things that you're creating these days.
0: Well, I appreciate that so much. <laughs> I mean, you you taught me ed tech, so I Well in.
1: Yeah, I taught you a little bit. I think you <laughs> sort of like a Yoda Luke thing at this point, right? <laughs> there you go. As long as you're Yoda, man. <laughs> um, right.
0: So this sort of, connects to a lot of the research that you've been doing lately. You've been looking into sort of the role that um, technology and the media and the storytelling all have to do with um, reconciliation. Can you talk a little bit about that work and, and sort of give us a sense of what you've been working on?
1: Well, I, I can speak about you know what I've done in the past and you know, some of the papers I've written with, with much better scholars than, than I am around, especially the indigenous uh, uh, issues, reconciliation and so on. Um, my area really is, is storytelling. Uh, I've been an advocate for Indigenous uh, peoples for a long time. Uh, I have a vested interest. My children uh, are have Indigenous ancestry, and I've, I've worked in institutions most of my life that uh, are Indigenous. Uh, that's where I started my career. That's where I continue to work with. Uh, and I'm very fortunate to work with uh, people who are welcoming to me um, uh, in, in such cases. Reconciliation, of course, is such a, a big and important topic that we're not dealing with very well. Part of the problem that we have, I think, is those people who, um, you know, Indigenous peoples in particular. Stories aren't being told. They're, they're marginalized, racialized um, in in our society, and the stories that are told are often stories that are uh, inaccurate. Um, you know, uh, born on fallacy, born on prejudice. And so those, you know, in in growing up in Saskatchewan, or probably any province in Canada, um, you know that you're growing up with a lot of misinformation and prejudice around, you know, the narratives that we tell. And so um, one of the projects that we worked with a while back is getting, you know, helping kids, young kids, work, develop stories. So the the art of storytelling in one sense, because it's incredibly important. and more important today, like digital storytelling, is everything from Instagram photos to podcasts, you know, uh, to you know using you know using apps that help tell a story. Um, any type of media, like storytelling, comes in so many different ways. But being able to give voice to individuals to speak their truth. So I, I love watching sort of the indigenous Twitter, uh, indigenous story TikTok. I mean, some of the Indigenous creators on TikTok are telling their stories in ways that need to be told. Uh, they're, they're finding voice, they're finding allies that um, you know that are able to see their stories in the way that they could be told in a way that couldn't have been told 10 years ago, five years ago, even. And so um, any way that we can bring voice um, is important. Digital, of course, brings voice to to more people. Um, but of course, the art of storytelling is, is also incredibly important because you can make those stories more compelling. So giving access and providing, you know, putting something on Twitter, you know, a, a story of some sort, um, and, and giving it potential or a web page, giving it potential access to millions of people doesn't mean that millions of people will watch that. You need to make mm-hmm. your stories compelling. And so that needs. So using some of the you know, fundamental storytelling um, grammar, I guess, is part of that. Um, um, learning about information theories uh, that, that, um, that make some information more heavy than others, that make it more shareable than others, uh, is, is really important. And uh, really leveraging some of the new tools that we have with, uh, with tools like TikTok, uh, YouTube, mm-hmm. for instance. Um, and of course, all of the sharing networks that ensue around that. So essentially, what I'm saying is, um, storytelling matters. Social media has great potential in um, sharing those stories, but without those stories being compelling, no one's going to share them. And I think, you know, that's that's a really important piece of what we're missing. I think in K-12 education, we have sort of the oppression of the bulletin board. You know, for the most part, our practice is. Um, Hey, create something really cool. And then we're gonna put, uh, put it on the bulletin board for only our class to see ever. Versus thinking of, um, I had one teacher from LaRange sort from La Losh, for instance. And he sent me an email saying, um, my students are creating a, a video project around, I don't know more, this was some years ago. And mm-hmm. I promised these kids that if they created a really great video that I would do my best to share it as far and as wide as possible. So I got this email, put it on Twitter, shared it on my blog. And, you know, people like the director of London, Ontario's district, you know, sent it to his, you know, 40,000 teachers, for instance. And that's amazing to think that, you know, we can share our students' work, you know, especially if it's compelling and tells stories like that with as many people possible as we possibly can. But again, if these stories aren't compelling, they're not gonna be shared. Um, So it's something we have to work on in K to 12 education, but I rant, so. (laughs)
0: Hey, it's a podcast, it's for rant. (laughs) That's right. Um, Do you think there's, I, I know maybe you're not fully able to speak to this, but I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts about sort of the tension between more traditional storytelling formats and digital storytelling. Um, so like how how folks navigate those waters, because I think there's an element of wanting to, in, you know, a, an element of wanting to honor traditional ways while also amplifying it. And so can you maybe speak a little bit to how that tension gets navigated?
1: Yeah, so I can speak to parts of this. I think there's a new, I just had a conversation yesterday about this uh, on the idea of, open content uh, and indigenous content for instance there's this whole movement of getting a content to be copy left versus copyright so it's content that can be shared by anyone uh has a very liberal license that you can you know you can use it remix it do whatever you want with it and mm-hmm. there's a there's a book and kind of a discussion that's ongoing is how does this apply to indigenous knowledges um and thinking about um in particular, like say, you know, an elder has a story that they're sharing in a very specific context and say someone wants to record that and put it online Mm -hmm. is the story the same when, when it may be much more contingent or contextual in the space that it's told, like stories can't be disconnected from space and place for Mm -hmm. the most part. Um, some to- some stories are only meant to be told orally. Once they're digital, that, that they're not no longer just oral, I guess, in a sense. And so, in some ways, we manipulate um, stories that may- that shouldn't be malleable uh, in ways that change the story in themselves. So we have to be really thoughtful about how we take these you know these um, oral traditions or. Other types of more traditional types of stories and digitizing because digitizing does something to them. Some mm-hmm. stories are only meant for certain ears, you know. They're they're only meant to be contextual local. Um, and opening up a story to uh, the globe may not always be appropriate and may uh, change the nature of the story itself. So, so mm-hmm. I think we have to be very thoughtful about um, you know respecting uh, cultural knowledge, uh, and, you know, the, you know, the storytellers, stories themselves and, you know, what we ultimately do with them. And so, so I think we can, a lot of, the vast majority of stories we can digitize and, 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 you know, put online and, and make available to others. But there's others that we have to really think about that, um, perhaps shouldn't be put out in those ways and are not as powerful or as potent uh, in you know, once we digitize them and share them differently and, and may not be as accurate as they were when they were told mm-hmm. in that contextual space.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Um, I think it's always sort of hard to have these conversations as sort sure. of two people who are um, fairly removed for this. And, and before we started recording, we talked a little bit about sort of our personal experiences on social media and how they contrast. Um, a lot to other people's experiences on social media. Um, specifically, we talked a little bit about people's experiences with with bullying and I think in I, I think there's some element of privilege that we have to acknowledge when we're going to talk about any of this stuff. And so I, I want to ask you a little bit about your experience with online bullying. Have you found it to be, significant and do you find it to be in pretty significant contrast to what maybe some of your peers or colleagues or friends have experienced? Yeah.
1: So, so it's, my experience has been pretty insignificant and, and not really surprisingly, I get a little bit of vitriol. Uh, I, you know, I noticed during this last trucker convoy that I was getting more pushback, but you know, for the most part, I block things and it's gone. Um, I get mm-hmm. the odd, uh, you know, email or sorry, physical mail to my uh, U of R mailbox. I got one not too long ago at the beginning of COVID that's, you know, basically it was someone who wrote that they want to curse my family and they wished cancer on all my children and that sort of thing. Like it was really horrible. He said, like mm. you don't want to ever read that sort of thing. Like it seemed like a witchcraft letter, but it was a physical letter that someone wrote. Uh, I posted it to Twitter. If anyone's interested, I'm sure I could find it. Um, in in its entirety, stuff that you don't want to see. So I you get that, but I'm not getting death threats for the most part. I'm not getting I'm not getting doxxed. Um, I'm not um, I, I don't feel that I have to make my account private. For instance, uh, like uh, Tenille LaFontaine, uh, another person on Twitter had to make their uh, theirs private. Not only did um, people come after. And people like Tammy Robert, for instance, who are, you know, local Saskatchewan political commentators on Twitter, you know, often these people have to go online, uh, offline, sorry, take down their accounts because they're getting all sorts of vitriol. And and part of it is because some of that vitriol is being led by, say, a prominent uh, white male shock jock that we have in Saskatchewan, for instance, I won't name any names. But, we'll keep it tight uh, <laughs> but you know if that person is saying you should go after these people online there's going to be a lot of these minions that go after these people online now what they, those people have in common they just happen to be female um you know fairly you know uh, you know um, young adult females who um, tend to be much bigger targets than me someone like me uh, a white male full professor you know with lots of privilege and you know, very fortunate to be able to speak my mind online. I'm not worried about, you know, for the most part, unless I do something really stupid, you know, losing my job, but I have academic freedom. I can say what I want to say uh, online. And, you know, most of the abusers, the bullies that typically used to be, that typically are white males, they leave me alone. They go after, you know, they they feed their inner misogyny and they decide to go after women instead. Uh, For whatever reason because they feel that they're more powerful that they can you know um i I don't even know the internal reasons that they would go after women um but of course that's the pattern that we see so the the problem i've had is because i teach you know i teach courses about social activism and i teach teachers about social activism and we we discuss about how we'd want their children. Like, how do we get high school kids to be social activists without being political activists, but social activists, like mm-hmm. you know, going after causes that matter to them, for instance, whether it's environment or, you know, masks or whatever it might be, um, mm-hmm. you know, whatever side of the spectrum that they sit on, something that matters to them. But I'm also asking, twi- you know, uh, my teachers to go on Twitter and to be vocal online, you know, asking them to an extent, I, you know, I, I encourage them. I don't mandate them or tell them to because, and and, and my, my message over the years has been much softer. I kind of really wanted them to do it before, but then I realized, what am I asking of my teachers, you know, over time? Um, when I bring, a you know, a BIPOC female who is totally racialized and demoralized online, what am I asking that student to do and to go through because of a class? Um, you know, and I have to put myself in their shoes well, I I don't get it, it's almost like like I use a ad blocker I use um, ad blocker I forget which one it is but basically when I look at the web I get none of the bad ads I get no bad content I don't get commercials at YouTube it's a really pleasant experience but it's sort of like you know the analogy would be when I'm asking someone who is much more marginalized online they're running through the web without an ad blocker <laughs> they're getting all of the really you know, horrible content online um, and I don't know how I'd function if I had to live in that world and I, I could be easily, you know, mentally stressed, incredibly anxious. I have to worry for my children and I'd have to worry for the threats that come out. Um, so yeah, the, the web doesn't look the same for every single person. And so we can't ex- have the same expectations of everyone uh, to do the same things, to speak out in the same ways.
0: Can you maybe speak a little bit then to the responsibility that comes with being a privileged person on, on online? Um, like what responsibility comes with that security or that platform or that position of privilege?
1: Well, well, for me, I mean, this is a philosophical thing, but, you know, I think the more privilege we have, the more we have to speak out. Um, our, our words are weighted more in, in many ways. We, we can have profound impact. We can, uh, we have the, the most, the greatest ability, for the most part, to persuade people like us with power and privilege to perhaps rethink the way that they travel through society, that the way that they treat others and so on. So um, like, I think we have a, a, the, the, not only the, the, the ability to, but the responsibility to, to speak online. Um, and absolutely in those cases, our silence is complicity to what's happening online. If we don't speak up against you know uh, what we think are maybe um, bad policies around vaccination, they're not going to listen to others. Um, you know we're we're typically people who need to speak out to to affect any social change or political change. Um, and so for us not to speak, I think is, um, I mean, I, I, it's hard to judge people because, you know, what they say online and what they want to go through, you know, it's up to them. I don't I want I to force others to say whatever it might be, but I, I do really value those with that privilege that um, even with less risk are willing to give up and to, to say what they need to say online to support others, to be allies for others who have less power and less privilege. And, you know, uh, that's a big part of what we do. You know, going back to the to the idea of reconciliation it shouldn't be left on indigenous peoples to deal with the reconciliation it's for us you know uh, you know it's it's this is a partnership this is not just for indigenous people this is in fact we should be doing the heavy load here as you know white males uh, or or any settlers who um, you know are able to say something to make things better to reconcile with our uh, past uh, criminalities. I think it's really important for us to, to reconsider that. But I, again, I can't ask everyone to do that. It's by preference that people do it. But, you know, um, I think we have to weigh those weigh, weigh, weigh each of the costs and benefits uh, on an individual level. People are at different places. So there's only so
0: much I to I, I think you phrased that so well. Um... Thank you so much. Um, do you have any shout outs that you would like to give anybody or any, any organizations or causes you'd like to draw attention to?
1: Oh, I don't know about that one. I, 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 I I'm I, If I say one, I'm gonna feel like I'm gonna leave out a hundred other ones later on and feel like I'm going to you know, have a rest of sleep tonight.
0: Um, In the meantime, uh, I guess just follow Alec on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. Follow me and uh, I'll lead you to the right uh, right people. There's a lot of people doing great things and tons of people in, this, you know, in the SAS Poly space, but of course, internationally. I do run uh, something called, uh, I've been hosting something called uh, the Let's Talk Science Coffee in a Keynote. Um, we have something coming up. Well, you probably, people won't hear this by then, but it's coming up. It's every, every last Saturday of every month. Basically, mm-hmm. I usually have a guest. Uh, and although probably, again, this will be too late for people to hear that this week I'm having, uh, Beth Eden, who's, uh, really into sustainable development goals. And how you can do that. You can watch the recording. So if you didn't get it live, you can watch the recording. Fantastic. Um, and so we, we have a number of really great guests who come to speak about important things. We've had, uh, Nora Young, we've had, uh, Ken Shelton, really great people who were speaking about important, uh, ideas often related to STEM, but, um, but also with heavy social justice uh, aspects to it. Awesome. Well,
0: thank you so much for joining me, Alec. I really appreciate this. Uh, Give Alec a follow on Twitter and thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Thanks for having me.